Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. You're very welcome to Health and Fitness this Friday evening, the 14th of April, halfway through this month. And it feels like winter's coming as opposed to the summer rolling in. Hope you're keeping well this Friday evening. We've got loads to look forward to this evening. You're going to be hearing about exercising in nature, but doing so in virtual reality. I'm going to explore some of the muscle groups that we don't work out enough and how that's actually counting against us when we do work out. Hopefully, we'll be able to uh, buy you a bit of an out and avoid some nasty injuries. You're going to be brought on a remarkable journey from the world of corporate nonsense uh, to a yoga-inspired existence. But first, we're going to kick off this evening's show looking at home care and uh, reports indicate that uh, the ser- home care services are apparently weeks away from chaos uh, without a new tender. That's what the sector is uh, warning. It's uh, basically in relation to a dispute between the uh, Home and Community Care Ireland, one of the uh, larger representative groups for home carers in the country. I think they cover about 10,000 uh, carers. Um, a dispute between themselves and the HSE. Uh, joining us to talk us through uh, what the respective issues issues at the moment are uh, is Ollie Daly. He's the owner of Bluebird Care in Athlone. Uh, Ollie, thank you for taking the call this evening. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me and uh, discussing this important issue. Thank you. No worries at all. Look, it, it is an important issue and for many reasons that we're going to touch on. But I think uh, for those who might be uninitiated this evening, um, it is a hugely important branch of healthcare. Can you get us up to speed on what's going on in relation to uh, the Home and Community Care Ireland, the HCCI and the HSE in terms of their dispute? OK, so I, um, I, I, I would like maybe just take out the word dispute. OK, uh, yeah. There's probably both sides are are, um, I won't say, in agreement at the moment. So maybe let's just take a couple of steps back and maybe just examine how we got here this evening. So um, in uh, 2018, uh, uh, there was a tender agreement put in place. And I suppose most people around the table at that stage when that tender was put in place agreed that it wasn't fit for purpose. Um, So what that tender involved is is, was really... um, Whatever home care carers were uh, services were out there, they tender for it. And really, at that point, it was um, uh, it was based primarily on price. And and uh, I suppose uh, if people were able to uh, deliver the services, so it was pretty much that. Uh, I won't say uh, it wasn't really a good deal. It certainly, wasn't a good deal for uh, the carers uh, because the carers have ended up, I suppose, working alongside HSE staff. Mm-hmm. Where they're on better terms and conditions than uh, than say people who are working for for Bluebird Care, and uh, it was generally agreed. Um, and indeed, Minister Mary Butler uh, and David English launched a report. Uh, the Strategic Workforce uh, uh, Advisory Group came together uh, and they launched a report. And basically, what they um, that report found was that um, you know the, the care should be um, offered and should be paid. Uh, the living wage. 
And um, so just to bring this forward then, uh, two years later, there was a modest increase um, in the price um, offered for the, the service that will provide to HSE and uh, with a view to looking at this long term. So for the last number of months, uh, HCCI and other independent um, uh, home care providers have been uh, around the table trying to negotiate what that looks like. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the uh, negotiations finished in February um, and to date we haven't heard back from uh, the HSE. Uh, they've gone back to the, to the Department of Health and really what it is coming down to is whether um, the Department of Health uh, want to fund uh, home care services as, as they should be. And as things stand, um, Ollie, um sorry to interrupt, just to establish this, that the existing tender between the HSE and home service uh, providers expired at the end of last year. So we're, we're into kind of rolling extensions right. at the moment. That's Is that right? right? That, that, and that's, that, that's a very fair point. So it was extended for two years and then we were asked uh, to extend it again at the end of uh, this year for another uh, four months until the, uh, all the ducks were put in a row. And unfortunately, to date, that hasn't happened. OK, so that's where we stand at the moment. Um, uh, now, just, I suppose, hot off the presses, I'm being told there's another meeting between the HCCI and the HSC next Wednesday morning. Um, so we're hoping that something uh, substantial will come out of that, but it's, it's literally down to the wire. Okay, and these meetings, uh, what kind of frequency are we talking about when they happen and how often are they productive or does something come out of them? I suppose there's been an ongoing process over the last number of years. There has been engagement from uh, the government parties and various committees within the within the door looking at this whole home care sector. So I, I suppose really, um, I, suppose I, I, I opened the... Uh, uh, Blueboard in Athlone in 2015, mm-hmm. and um, what I would say is that um, if you look at where we were in 2015 and 2018, the services um, is, has been transformed, and the way it's looked at uh, in terms of being the solution for some of the issues there within the healthcare system um, is now being recognised. So, for example, if you look at uh, uh, pre-pandemic. Um, you know, the go-to place for people in 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 for elderly care was actually um, uh, uh, the default button was actually sent them to a to a nursing home. Right. Not that there's anything working wrong with nursing homes, but the health outcomes are better. Um, and I suppose one thing that's not very well publicised that uh, in the certainly the early part of the epidemic, uh, nursing homes uh, in Ireland had the highest death rates uh, in the world. Um, but, uh, and I know there's obviously others, there's obviously investigations going into that and there's various committees being um, formed to, to investigate. And that. I think but we're going to be learning lessons about that and the pandemic yeah, for a long time. About that. And, and certainly, I suppose, home care then, if you look at this, um, what happened then was is that, um, uh, you know, people wanted to stay home. The default position is no longer going into nursing home. People want to, to be cared and uh, cared for at home. And we, as as a service provider, can do an awful lot with a, an hour in the morning and a half an hour in the evening, or even going in to prepare somebody's lunch at lunchtime for a half, during a half an hour during the day. So we're a very cost-effective model. And the, the reality is that while there's some very, very fine uh, nursing homes out there, 
it's not it's not people's home. People want to stay in your home for as long as possible, and that's and that's quite uh, that's quite normal. Um, so, like during the pandemic, um, we would say our services we we, we provide an extra thirty percent in hours. Um, across the, the Midland regions into the HLC mm. uh, to assist uh, with the pandemic, and um, you know I'm just looking at some figures today. If 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 you if, if you let me uh, indulge me a bit, the waiting list sure. at the moment in terms of um, if you compare it uh, between December uh, 2022 and 2021, uh, there's actually 6,673 people. That's up 25 percent waiting for service for home care services nationally. Now the good news is if you're living in my area, Longford, Roscommon or Westmead, um, there's actually an improvement. Uh, Roscommon has improved by 9%. Uh, it's down, in other words, uh, there's less of a waiting list. Um, uh, but nonetheless, there's still 115 people waiting for services in Roscommon. And Longford, Westmead, uh, there's 62 people uh, waiting. That's down 45% on okay. the Let's. Can I ask you to um, get? Can we pause for a second, right? And yeah. I, I, I want to go back to uh, the time during the pandemic. Um, it, it it occurred to many people that uh, those providing healthcare in the face of in the teeth of that pandemic were actually providing yeah. a, a service that was far more essential than we really gave credence and credit to. Um, the I HSE acknowledged this. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does it say about? Uh, the HSE's actual uh, perspective on this, that they haven't been able to close a deal with HCCI uh, and home care providers over the course of what is now an extended period of time. Yeah, you, you see, you've made a very valid um, point there. And I think, uh, I'm delighted that you picked it up, really, because the reality is is that, um, you know, home care services really stepped up to the plate all over the, the pandemic. Mm. Uh, you know, when people were staying at home, um, uh, it's not only in my services that we were providing, but in home care services in general, right across uh, the country, people went out, uh, went into people's homes, obviously to have PPP, but then some people uh, wouldn't have been seeing their, uh, seeing their families or their, if there was a loved one, they wouldn't have been able to visit those loved ones. And so, and, and that was often the case that we would have had uh, people going out and looking after people in the community and indeed um, uh, calling on some very, very sick people and then going home and having to uh, uh, stay in a separate room in the house because they were afraid to go near their own office because they would have been a vulnerable adult. Sure. Um, so, uh, absolutely. So, like, the reality is, is that even though, uh, and, and I'm just going to say this, there's some fantastic people working within the HSE. Um, I'm not quite sure um, if if uh, if they're being provided the funds to provide uh, the, the, the essential services uh, that, uh, that, uh, that are that are needed. And the reality is is that um, home care services, whether I like to admit it or not, tends to be on. Um, can I use this word on air? The hind tit when it comes to um, uh, you know money being divvied out. Okay. And then the reason I say that, um, for I'll give you one simple remedy to some of the issues. I wrote to every um, TD in Longford, Roscommon and Westmead, uh, asking them would to lobby the government during the pandemic to um, uh, you know put a, 
uh, a stay on people's uh, social welfare so that they could retain their medical cards. Um, and uh, I think we have one response uh, from any of the TDs in Longford Westmead or Common. So in other words, what we were looking for is, is that um, a, a, a lot of people that we would work for, so about 60% of the people that are working for, right across the industry, and I'm quoting from HCCI figures, actually 67% uh, of the people who would be on some sort of benefits put with the era medical card, mm-hmm. you know, known parents, uh, etc. And um, so what we were asking uh, the government at the time to do is, look, uh, let them retain these uh, benefits, but yet let them work an extra five or ten hours a week. Yeah. And it fell on deaf ears. Oh, this is what well, I wanted to bring us on to the next point of this is it, to the layman, which I am describing myself as in this instance. It would seem to me that if the HSE actually brought a game changing level of investment into home care, uh, with, yeah. and, and this being maybe an opportunity to do so when we're, we're in between a, a lapse of tender, that, that they could find a way to uh, mitigate against the huge overcrowding uh, issues that they've got within uh, the healthcare system in Ireland. I imagine if if people are going to emergency rooms and, and GPs unnecessarily, maybe. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't think it's going to be uh, the... Um, uh, um, the total solution, like all these things, sure. has to be aggregate of, of, of a number of different. But it would certainly go a long way to help um, uh, to make the to, to make the uh, wages within the sector an awful lot more uh, attractive. What would you like and, to see happen um, next? Well, I'd I'd like um, for the the Department of Health to release the money. There there is a figure put on. uh, There was a cost um, analysis done in terms of what the true cost of care um, uh, would be in the event of us being able to pay our carers going out in the morning, uh, give them the living wage, pay them from travelling from house from house to house like they uh, they can with the. uh, like the HSC staff can get, and there's a there's a figure on that, and that's what we, that's what I would like to see. I would like that to see that figure being released by the Department of Health, uh, and and the and the service being properly funded. That would guess would that would that would be asking like, the HSC to treat um, essentially private uh, healthcare workers uh, uh, to the same degree as they do their own, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I'll just give you another thing, and 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 that's again. Uh, Dave, you meant to treat uh, um, our staff the very same way as uh, the um, uh, as the HSC staff. And um, what I would say is, if you look at the pandemic bonus that was announced back in two thousand and twenty, right? And uh, everybody within the HSC got the pandemic uh, bonus. It wasn't until earlier this year that money was released to pay our staff. Yeah, a full year after. I know it went on uh, a phenomenal amount of time, and 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 yeah. the, 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 there's natural structural um, maybe reservations about um, having the same policy for both state and private uh, workers. My, my final point here, and we have just about no time left, Ollie, and I really thank you okay. for the time you've taken here. Is uh, just talk no us through, yet. you know, your line of work. It's for a lot of people, it's a passion and it's a it's a it's a calling rather than just a job. Well, it, it, it's funny, Dave. Maybe some of the listeners might recognise me. Actually, I um, uh, I didn't start off my career in I actually uh, in, in 
healthcare. I found, I found my way in here quite accidentally. Um, I was originally uh, went into retail at 19 years of age. Um, I managed, uh, you might be too young to remember, but it was crazy prices in my day. Oh, I remember crazy prices, absolutely. <laughs> so I was a manager over there for a number of years. I had a, When you had your, your offices upstairs over Galvin's there, I used to go in and record ads on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. I was jolly ollie at the time, and we, uh, we recorded ads. They were trying to uh, get me to record ads there. God, sure. I used to hate going over to do it. But anyway, they, so I look, what I did then is I found, um, I, I, I left retail. I managed a group of chemists in Galway uh, for a number of years. And when the drug payment scheme uh, changed, we had to close three of the, three of the stores. Okay. And uh, I, 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 I started working for a doctor in a, in a nursing home. And uh, what happened after that then is I went on and did a master's in healthcare management. And I suppose when I came into, um, I suppose, elderly care sector, I found that um, I, I was just mesmerised by the people that were in there and the work that they were doing, and um, were really, really passionate about about delivering care to older people. But I, even though, uh, and I've seen this at first hand. Um, people would be coming into the nursing homes to be looked after. I just felt it was anything we could do to keep them in their own homes because a lot of people sitting in nursing homes just didn't want to be there. No, it, look, so, and it, um, Ollie, it makes just, it makes perfect sense um, as a concept, yeah. and your passion for it shines through. Uh, owner of Bluebird yeah. Care, uh, Bluebird Care in Athlone, yeah. uh, Ollie, care. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this evening. No problem, Dave. Thank you. Take Cheers. Good talk. Good talk to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Next up, we're heading to virtual reality. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. You're very welcome back to Health and Fitness. David Hollywood here with you of a Friday evening. Now, we are looking at exercising in nature. I think it's all something, it's something we've all agreed that it's important. Uh, but what about doing it in virtual reality? It's a strange question. And a man who uh, works along these lines, I first had to ask how he got into that. Assistant Professor in Marketing in Maynooth University, Brendan Keegan, uh, talks to us about exercising in virtual reality. And first I asked him his background. I arrived quite late towards the the exercise field of things. I was quite a lazy teenager and played Gaelic football and various <laughs> things like that. But I never really took it all too seriously until I reached a mid to late 20s when weight started gaining on and various other midlife uh, uh, attributes. But uh, what I did then is I took up uh, running. And I took up quite a lot of running and I was based in, I was living in the UK at the time and I lived in Manchester, which is a fantastic city if you're a football fan or not. Uh, but one of the aspects of Manchester that's quite interesting is that it's quite flat and there's a lot of canals that radiate from the centre of the city. So what I did was I used to run up and down all these canals um, purely because I didn't want to be running on path. I didn't want to be running near uh, uh, cars. What I wanted to see was little snippets of nature, uh, whether that's a bird or whether that's geese or whether that's uh, various bits of grass or flowers that are growing mm. along the canal side. And I found that much more uh, beneficial, much more enjoyable as part of my long runs. So as a result of that, I track all of these little runs on my on my watch or my phone or 
various different uh, systems like Strava and I track all these runs and I'll be able to look back over them and see a little bit of analysis of how fast I was running. Now, I like the digital side of it because I'm I'm, I'm a bit of a marketing, uh, I'm a bit of a geek. Sure. Uh, but what I also liked was the nature side of it. So gradually I started to look at this from a bit more of a of a researcher's perspective. And then I started to discover all this this wonderful body of research that's done there, both from medical, but also from psychological perspectives that talk about a, a very simple idea, a very simple concept that going for a walk in nature makes you feel better. So I started to wonder about, well, what does this actually mean? And, you know, what 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 are the, the bare bones of this? And I came across this great phrase referred to as salutogenic. So if you think about pathogenic, which okay. is, we, we know all about that word now. Pathogenic means sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah, like the one that we've just experienced recently. You know, pathogenesis is about disease and, you know, bad things. Salutogenic or salutogenesis is about the health and well being effects of doing something. So, what I ended up doing, a very long story short, was ended up doing bits of research to look at the salutogenic effects of what's what's referred to as green exercise and by green exercise we obviously mean exercise in nature now there's lots of different attributes lots of different layers to that we could talk about the air quality we could talk about um physical uh visual stimuli such as looking at green colors makes people feel better you have a green room beside a theater because the color does something to the human psyche i mean there's lots of research there that talks about the you know the genuine benefits of exercising in nature yet we don't do it we go to a gym we go into a room with lots of other sweaty people we stand on a treadmill we do all of this exercise indoors because it's convenient because of the of the nature of the exercise makeup that's out there so as a result of of looking into this a little bit more i, I became increasingly convinced that you know there's different ways in which if we can encourage people to get out in nature to physically exercise that hopefully they will feel better and hopefully uh, feel better from a physical perspective, but also from a, a mental and mental health and well-being perspective. Now, uh, fast forward to where I'm up to recently. Uh, I'm currently working on a couple of different projects. And one major one, which I have to give a hat tip and I have to have to try and plug do, do, is a do. project called called Go Green Roots. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm on commission as well, so there's 2% there. Um, so uh, Go Green Roots, what we're looking to do there is we're looking to establish um, uh, green areas within uh, very concreted, very industrial uh, derelict areas in, in different cities across the European Union. Now, this project is housed, it's, it's centrally managed through Maynooth University, so not too far away. And what we're looking at doing there is we're looking at installing what we call green infrastructure, which is basically taking old concrete uh, polluted or derelict areas of various cities across Europe. And we're looking to install bits of nature to make uh, citizens or people who walk up and down these streets to make them feel better and to look at those salutogenic effects. Do people feel better by walking around nature in what would be an otherwise urban environment? Now, that relates to lots of different strands. There's lots of people involved in the project, but my perspective uh, or my, my role in that project is looking at how digital applications help us um, uh, to feel better by engaging in in virtual reality versions of green exercise. And here we are on the fascinating thrust of our discussion. Uh, it's worth taking a breath for a moment to reflect on what you've said. And one of the things I wanted to stop on is you've talked us through how humans do better uh, when involved in nature and we gravitate towards that um, things that feel natural, as it were. Um, so I know uh, having moved to the Midlands in recent times, 
I, I just like you I, I go for a run on the canal often at the weekends it's where I, I just I'm drawn to it and there's a, a lovely park in Tullamore and we've got great places across the Midlands in Westmeath and in Leash uh, but the world is becoming more urbanised and as you say we're under more time pressure in our lives convenience takes over is virtual reality a potential solution to this shortfall? <laughs> well, I can't answer that question definitively unless we finish the project. And I'd like to have more data to answer that question. Fair. What we are leaning towards is that we can certainly see the benefits of a virtual reality, uh, natural environments that are built on virtual reality. We can certainly see the beneficial or salutogenic effects of that within particular groups of people. So if you imagine that somebody now, aside from the fact that we are absolutely blessed with beautiful countryside in Ireland and particularly in the Midlands, you know, we've got rivers, we've got lakes, we've got absolutely everything there. If you imagine that there's cities in Europe, one of our one of my co-researchers lives in Milan and constantly complains that it's all concrete. Uh, all the green has been taken out. So various things like that. It's important for people like that who live in dense urban concrete environments. But if you imagine that people might be uh, physically impaired, they might be elderly, they might be disabled, uh, they might be in a situation where they cannot experience some of that natural environments. It can be quite useful for those people as well. So what we're looking at is this concept of nature-based therapies, where you may have a therapeutic environment, you may have something uh, like a hospital, may have people, they might be given doses of nature through virtual reality headsets or through an, something as simple as an iPad, they might be provided with this environment that they can interact in and they can actually witness uh, a green environment or a natural space or a blue space within that to try and help with their recuperation or to try and help uh, to promote some of these salutogenic effects. Now, we're not fully there because generating these natural environments through virtual reality headsets and virtual reality environments is very difficult it's very complex it costs a lot of money and you have to adore you have to put this thing on your head one of these headsets which not everybody has so there's a cost element to it as well where it can be quite restrictive to everybody within the general population but as I'm sure you're aware, David, virtual reality is a complete re re digital reconstruction of an environment. Augmented reality is a slightly cheaper bargain bucket approach uh, to trying to promote some of these salutogenic effects of, uh, of green exercise. And as you know, augmented reality is where you might look around with a device and it gives you an augmentation, such in, something like a pop-up or it might be a QR code that you have on the side of a tree that might give you some additional uh, stimuli or might give you some additional information. Let's kind of land on what your findings in your in, in your work ha has has produced. And my final question about this is, like, why, why does virtual reality nature work? Surely the human brain needs nature to be real and natural. Um, this is blowing my mind personally. Uh, and then you might just kind of wrap things up from uh, your perspective, having done the academic work uh, about what we're talking about today. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, what we what we have found so far, myself and other researchers and other people that I've worked with uh, on these various projects, is that it, it, virtual reality is a very useful, it's a powerful and a very useful tool to generate and to elicit responses from, from people who are taking part. Now, those responses range. Some of them can be quite positive, where people are therefore encouraged to go and walk in nature or encouraged to exercise in nature as a result of seeing this virtual uh, reality environment. 
I should also point out that there are challenges and issues with that as well. And one particular one that we've noticed is something called cyber sickness, where a lot of our participants actually get quite dizzy and they feel ill as a result of being on one of these treadmills or the visual stimuli that they see because it's 360 degrees a lot of them become quite dizzy and there a lot of them are put off the environment so it's not all roses just yet what we hope to do is we hope to try and moderate that and hope to build in some uh, some ways to try and stabilize the experience uh, shall we say but what we have proved through scientific means and writing up a lot of these writing up a lot of this research at the moment is that people are genuinely encouraged to go out into real natural nature environments as a result of exposure to virtual reality experiences. Now we've tested these with different groups, with different ages. What we found is that younger groups, uh, undergraduate students in one of the universities, for example, a lot of them were, were more motivated to take, take part in regular exercise in natural environments as a result of exposure to one of these virtual reality uh, green environments. I think that's an excellent punctuation on what has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Assistant Professor in Marketing in Maynooth University, uh, Brendan Keegan, uh, phenomenal work that you've been doing and uh, very much cutting edge. I look forward to following it personally and I'm sure our listeners uh, will do as well down the line. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us this evening. No problem, David. Thanks very much. A phenomenal uh, discussion there. Technology uh, and virtual reality specifically is coming uh, to your home and it will be there at some stage. And there could be many benefits to living with it. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Anna Pastava is the course coordinator and lecturer in athletic uh, and rehab in TUS in Athlone. She's talking to us today about muscle group neglect and what we can do to bounce back to our strongest selves. Uh, First, I asked her to talk us through how she found this world herself. By background, I'm a physiotherapist. Um, But at TUS, I work as a course coordinator and lecturer at the Athletic and Reputation Therapy Programme. It sounds like it could be a very rewarding experience, um, kind of investing your time in understanding uh, the human body and how to maintain and and repair it. Oh, yes, definitely. It's great to know it even uh, from like a personal point of view, being able to help your family and friends and also yourself. We're talking about the muscle groups that we might ignore uh, or that life has kind of led us uh, to neglecting over time. And I thought you would be a good person to ask about this. So can you shed some light on it for us? What's the first kind of muscle group or issue on this topic that you'd like to highlight? One of the muscles that are very commonly neglected are deep stabilizers in our body. And uh, by that, these stabilizers are uh, located in many different areas of our body. Okay. Which are, so at the moment, I'm thinking of stabilizers of the spine. There are deep muscles that stabilize our spine. And the ones that we're particularly weak at are is the regions we're particularly weak at is neck and also lower back pain. And this corresponds with the number of pains and chronic issues people have in those regions. Yeah, it's a widespread issue, isn't it? That neck and back pain, so many people complain yes. of it. And and that's what you would call deep muscles that are, are, are the issue here. Yes. So they, they've, they have particular names. So um, when we're thinking of the lower back region, we have deep back extensor muscle called multifidus and also a deep layer of abdominal muscles that's called transversus abdominis. So these muscles are very important stabilizers of the trunk. And the weakness in these uh, of these muscles will lead to chronic lower back pain. So they're def- it's definitely worth including these uh, muscles in our routine exercise programs. 
perfect that you say that because I think uh, I can almost hear the people of the Midlands saying now, well, explain to us, how do we uh, uh, how do we sort this out or, or prevent issues uh, developing as we as we um, go through the stages of our lives? Um, so what are the kind of exercises that people might be able to do in the morning or when they get home uh, that, that, that might be able to count against some of those problems? OK, so I may give like two exercises, uh, one for each. Uh, so for transversus abdominis, so our, we need to lie down, face up, uh, our knees bent, feet on the ground. Okay, so I, I hope everyone can visualize that. Okay. And once we're in this position, there should generally be a tiny gap under our lower back. And that's fine. We're trying to maintain that, that small gap. But at the same time, what we're trying to do is, is tighten our core and bring our belly button down like closer to the spine. So it's all about slow and controlled contraction okay. of the deep layer of our, uh, of, our, of our stomach. Okay. I'm sort of trying it here in the studio, but I, I've got limited space. I hope people uh, have been able to take uh, note of that. And is there anything else along those lines that we can do to protect our neck and our back? If we kind of move on to the next stage and try to engage multifidus, that would be best on uh, lying face down. Okay. So our legs would be straight and we can put our arms uh, up behind, like beside our head, okay? And in this position, we are going to try and engage our transversus abdominis. So we kind of know that sensation already. So we're trying to suck our belly button in, Mm. control the core. And while we do that, we would raise one of the arms up, okay? And then bring it down. And I guess what's what's really important to to mention at this point, uh, muscles that are stabilizers need to be strong, but they need to be able to use that strength for prolonged periods of time. So it's not like we engage them and then they can relax. They require to work all day long to maintain our position or our posture. So for this reason, we exercise these muscles a little bit different than other muscles that we would normally exercise in the gym. Because it feels different. And As I was just trying to practice what you say, it's it's different to maybe a bicep curl or something like yes. that and how it feels. It's very different sensation. And the way we want to exercise it, it we, we want to contract those muscles and hold the contraction for five to 10 seconds, maybe. Might be hard initially, but we can build up so we're trying to build endurance in those muscles. So we're trying to get them engaged for maybe five to 10 seconds, as I said, give them rest and repeat it a couple of times, even three to five times. But what's crucial here for these muscles is that we keep engaging them regularly throughout the day. And I know this sounds hard because we need to remember about it multiple times. But an interesting thing is that if we keep engaging in those exercises, even a couple of times a day, and it won't take longer than a minute to do it. And we may, for some of them, we may not even need to lie down. Transverse abdominis might be also exercised in sitting while you're sitting at your desk. So when we do engage in those regular exercises for around three weeks, our body starts to automatically engage these muscles more, even without us thinking about it. I think when people are listening to this who might um, be used to going to the gym or running or, or, or form of exercise, they'd be familiar with that concept where 
you know, if you don't do something for a long time, it's very difficult initially. And then the body learns as it goes yeah. and, and you feel more natural doing it. That's really helpful advice. Um, we are, as ever, very much against the clock here, Anna. So I'll ask you um, to give us one more maybe muscle group, maybe something specific um, for our listeners uh, that you think is another grouping that might be neglected, maybe by a group of people or people who do a certain activity or anything along those lines. Could you give us another one? Maybe we'll focus on on people who do cardiovascular activities like running or, or, or jogging, walking. Great. Uh, I think these people often tend to forget about strengthening exercises. And when, even when they do strengthen their, their, their muscles, they often forget about uh, gluteus medius and minimus. And what these are these gluteus are, medius and minimus? These are small muscles located on the outside of our hip and pelvis. And they're important because their job is to maintain stability of the pelvis. And stability of the pelvis is really important, particularly for those who walk a lot and run a lot. Because if our stay, if our pelvis isn't stable during those activities, there will be a lot of pressure put on our lower back and on our knees. Because it's it's like a domino effect, isn't it? Um, or yeah. it, it it's a chain reaction, and and running particularly can have an abrasive effect on on the human body. If you do these strengthening exercises, however, that can really help in this regard. So. What kind of practical exercises can people at home do or before they go out on a run or, or during the week? Yes, yeah, so gluteus medius minimus. Uh, so these muscles, we, in these muscles, we also want to um, improve uh, strength and endurance, but we take a slightly different approach. So we're going to exercise them more like all the other uh, muscles that we know uh, an exercise in the gym. We can do it two to three times a week, uh, doing maybe three sets of 12 to 15 repetitions. And to give a particular exercise, so for gluteus medius and minimus, there's an exercise uh, called clam. And it basically means that we have to lie on the side, lie down on, on, on the mat or on the floor, mm-hmm. lying on the side. Our knees are f- and hips are, f- are flex, okay, bent. We're trying to keep our heels together, but we're separating the knees. So yeah. this basically means that one leg that's on the top is going to be lift, but only at the knees and our feet are staying together. Does this make sense? It does make sense. Uh, it's, it's you're separating one point of your legs um, and, yes. and the, the, the weight of your leg uh, against gravity is, is really making those smaller muscles work. Is that correct? Yes, and the positioning is making them work. And if we want to make it harder, we can use a a resistance band, wrap it around our knees, and that will make it even harder. Because we need to remember that when we're strengthening muscles uh, like this, for example, we we want to make it harder and harder every next time or maybe every next week. So we can start doing it with no resistance, but eventually we would like to make it a little bit harder for ourselves so we can wrap that resistance band around our knees. Or then in a later stage, we can move on to more advanced form of exercise. Anna Postava, course coordinator and lecturer in athletic and rehabilitation therapy at the Technological University of the Shannon. You've been wonderful with your time this evening and really uh, wonderful in 
maybe giving our listeners uh, some help uh, going forward, either to handle the pains they've been wondering about in terms of those uh, neck and back muscles, or indeed, um, maybe we've prevented an injury or two from uh, the running groups listening in as well. Thanks again for talking to us this evening. Thank you, David. Next, we're going to be speaking to somebody who practices yoga, teaches yoga and at the outset of health and fitness um, on Midlands 103, we've wanted to make participation uh, a big part uh, of the show. And uh, that's what we're talking about next. Maybe you might join this particular club. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood this Friday evening. Now, when you hear the term yoga, you think posture-based physical fitness, maybe stress relief, a relaxation technique. It's become the doyen of the wellness industry and many have uh, flooded to it and away from a far more stressful lifestyle. Uh, one such person is Ailish Fitzpatrick. She's the owner of Black Hill Woods Retreat in Abbey Leaks and she's speaking to our reporter, uh, Chloe Farrell. Like many people, it was a very stressful lifestyle that brought me over to yoga. I started in Dublin about 20 years ago. I was an environmental scientist in a very stressful corporate job. I think that I had a dream that it was going to be a lot uh, more green than it was. In, in reality, it's a, it's a very tough and very challenging job in a, in a corporate setting. So I found yoga and at least once a week I got to switch off for even half an hour of the hour. <laughs> it wasn't all relaxation, a lot of a lot of hard work in there as well. It was too stressed that I came to yoga to relax for sure. How did it come then to open your own business for yoga? Yeah, well I continued on in that job for five years with yoga as a bit of a lifeline and then I decided the corporate world world wasn't for me. And myself and my sister went off on our travels. We went from South America up to Alaska, pretty much. Well, just about. We kind of ran out of money at that stage. <laughs> but um, we went on an amazing trip. And while we were away, we realized that just wasn't the life for us anymore. So we decided to go for a big change. And we moved back to our hometown in Portleach and took over our family business, which was closed at the time. So a very busy pub in the middle of Port Leach, the square bar, I'm sure lots of your listeners know it. So yoga, again, was a sideline and a lifeline through, the, through that period of life. And two years later, I decided to do my teacher training. So I traveled to Bali, Indonesia, and I did a, an intensive there, just with the intention of having it for myself and my own personal development. But um, <laughs> while chatting to one of the locals at the bar before I left, he was intent that I come home and train the Port Leach hurlers. In for the bit of stretching as they put it <laughs> which was the best thing ever because if it was left to my own devices you'd never feel ready enough to start teaching but I literally had to come home get back into working in the pub and start teaching yoga immediately to a very tough crowd at first poorly childless but they got a lot out of it by the end of the six weeks and by that stage I was ready to go a lot more into my teaching I did it part time along with running the pub for a long time but they were very contradictory lifestyles. I felt like I would have people out parking on the Saturday night and then put them back together on a Wednesday. <laughs> so I decided after another while I'd have to go all in. And I opened my own yoga studio in Port Leash in 2010 called Yogi Librium. And I was there up until last year, COVID included. I was there up until last year, so it would have been nearly 10 years. But during that time, I met my partner, Simon, 
we were together seven years now this year, and he's from Black Hill Woods Retreat in Avalique. And we merged our lives, not just our businesses. He's a yoga teacher as well. So we have moved all of our operations here to our home in Black Hill Woods Retreat, Avalique. So we have all of the yoga here, retreats here, and yeah, running the family and the dogs and the whole job <laughs> in the middle of the woods. It's a lovely, lovely life. Can you describe yoga for me? Well, for somebody who's never been to a yoga class, I suppose is the best thing. Like yoga is huge. Yoga is so broad. It's absolutely mind-boggling and it's ancient. It originated in India thousands and thousands of years ago, much, much further back than written records would have us believe. So it's, it's been around a very, very long time. But for this purpose, <laughs> or for people who are just going to think of, I'd like to go to a yoga class, what to expect? You could just, you just walk in, you ground, settle, breathe. We all try to harmonize together because there's so many people coming to you now with all kinds of modern day stresses. You know, life is getting faster and faster. So it's it's a way for us all to stop, slow down and connect and to breathe. And then we move (laughs) and then we relax a lot deeper. So the thing is that ideally you'd get somebody to walk into a room and just say, sit down and relax. But that's not the way humans are wired. We can't just move into that space immediately from, as I say, that fast paced life. So it's good to um, work through the body. So we, the body is very tangible. We can use the breath and use the postures. And then after a while, we're getting ourselves out of the, heart, the head and into the body so that we can eventually wind down enough to relax at the end. What are the different types of yoga that you provide? Well, I suppose what we offer here is a, a lot of choice, really. We really want to make it as accessible and welcoming to everybody as possible. Myself and Simon teach, and we're complete opposites for a start. <laughs> Simon is more yin yoga than me, so yin yoga is very deeply restorative, a lot of floor-based poses. A lot, you don't even really stand up in the yin class, so this very deeply relaxing meditative yoga, great for recovery, or just if you really need to deeply relax. And then I'm more flow-based and more yang, so a lot more a lot more activity in my class but you will get to see your last at the end as well we have another few teachers who work with us as well and they're all completely different you know every time you come to a class it's different the teachers bring their own personality their own energy everything to a, to a class so some of them can be really strenuous and some of them can be super relaxing and it depends on what you're looking for in the in the week that you need you know Yoga is really a holistic practice. It's for the body, it's for the mind, and it's for the spirit. So you'll notice after your first yoga class, you're going to feel different. It's different than any other kind of exercise because there is a real focus on getting yourself into the present and into the now. So our our, our brains are always trying to take us forwards or backwards, but our body is always here and now and in the present. So when we're practicing, especially as a group, it's, it's amazing for a physical body. You'll get stronger, more flexible, more mobile, all that good stuff, better lung capacity. All, all the, the benefits physically are innumerable. The benefits for the mind are similar, yeah. It's just getting that real clarity, focus, peace of mind, turning down the stress response tuning into the rest and digest response, the relaxation response, which everybody's been on absolute edge for the last few years and stress has gone up to 90 just with everyone. So we have to really learn or relearn how it is to move into a place of relaxation. And as well as that spiritual benefits, it's just getting yourself to really know yourself a lot more because you're testing your limits, your boundaries, and you're getting yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone. So when you do 
it helps you when you come off the mat as well because you're able to, you know, stretch your limits in other ways in life that you can be a bit more emotionally resilient and that kind of thing. Can somebody take up yoga at any time or what kind of people would yoga suit? Oh, I would say absolutely, yes, it's for everyone. Uh, that was always my ethos when I started out. It was like, that's it. I, I, I did it in Dublin for years and I, I found it quite elitist. I know it's probably moved on a lot since then, but when I started, I was used to be just a certain subsect of people would do it. And that didn't appeal to me. When I wanted to start my own studio in Cornish, in Centre Town, I said, that's it, it's for everybody. And then I made it. So I had pregnancy yoga, I had baby yoga, I had kids yoga, all different ages, teenage yoga. <laughs> There's different open level classes for beginners to, to advance. And then golden yogi, my darlings, so people who are older. So it's for everyone. <laughs> it's priceless. Like it's way more than, it goes way more than beyond the physical benefits, you know. A lot of people come to yoga when they're going through a transitionary period in life. So whether, you know, just become pregnant or they're trying to become pregnant or maybe they've lost somebody or they're retiring or they're changing job or they've moved to a town. It's a great way for you to take stock of your life and to stop and to assess and to decide what's most with their yoga journey or with their life in general journey. And I suppose my last question then is how can somebody get involved with yourself? With us, we're very accessible. <laughs> you can practice with us remotely. We have a whole online library there since the good old lockdown days. We've, between myself and Simon, we've accumulated like 300 videos there. So go on to our website, www.blackhillwood.ie. We also have a pregnancy yoga as well. So we have unlimited memberships. So you can do as many classes as you want in the month. And, or else you can just pick and choose, drop in. Whatever you want, it's all very, very made very accessible and very welcoming for everyone, whatever stage you're at on your yoga journey. And breathe. That was Ailish Fitzpatrick, the owner of Black Hill Woods Retreat in Abbey Links. Uh, my thanks uh, to her for taking the time and my thanks, of course, uh, to Chloe Farrell for leading that discussion with Ailish. Uh, let's circle back to the top of the show. Ollie Daly talked to us about the contract um, issue between the HSE and uh, home carers in Ireland. He, of course, is the owner of uh, Bluebird uh, Healthcare, uh, Bluebird Home Care in Athlone. Um, we also spoke to Brendan Keegan, who is the assistant professor in marketing in Maynooth University, about exercising in virtual reality. It was a fascinating discussion. And thanks as well to Anna Postava, uh, who's the course coordinator and lecturer in athletic and rehabilitation in TUS Athlone, talking about those muscle groups that we neglect. We're heading over to the Midlands 103 newsroom, and then it's Joe Cooney and Country Roads. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. TheHearingConsultancy.ie Midlands 103.